Hello and welcome to Beastly Theories. I'm your host, Andy McGrath. Now, today we have Scott Mardis. Scott has been an active field investigator of the Lake Champlain Monster since 1992. He's a former sustaining member of the now defunct International Society of Cryptozoology and a former volunteer worker in the vertebrate paleontology department of the Philadelphia Academy of Natural Sciences. He's also co-authored a scientific abstract about the Lake Champlain hydrophone sounds, the Acoustical Society of America, and he's the founder of the online research group, the Zombie Plesiosaur Society. Currently lives in Bradenton, Florida. Scott, how are you? Lovely to have you on the show. I'm good, Andy. Thank you for having me. So the first thing I really want to know, Scott, is, is how is the polar vortex affecting you down there in Florida? Well, it's been in the 40s at night. Not too bad. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I guess it never really hits you guys hard. 60s during the day, so it's not bad. I'm way down near Tampa Bay, I mean, midway down Florida, so we normally have very mild winters. That sounds that sounds absolutely wonderful, like a dream. It's about, uh, I work in Celsius, so I'd say it's about minus three here at the moment. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, actually. Well, I lived in Vermont for 18 years. So oh, there you go. I know what <laughs> Escape from the snow, the retirement years. Now, Scott, you've been searching for Champ, uh, the lake monster of Lake Champlain, uh, since 1992. So why don't you give us a, a little background on, on how you came to be enamored with this particular lake monster? How did well, you get there? My first love was Nessie. I was 11 years old when the Rhines pictures from 1975, the underwater picture of the neck oh, yeah. of the head, made headlines in the supposed close-up of the head. And the combination of that and seeing Jaws at the movie really made me a sea monster nut. I didn't really get uh, serious about cryptozoology until the very early 1990s. And then I started planning to move to Vermont. My initial idea was to actually move to Scotland. Wow. But that just money-wise and, and all that, it just was not practical. But Moving from Philadelphia to Vermont was doable, so I did it. I made an initial trip up there while I was still living in Philadelphia. My first trip to Lake Champlain was November of 1992, right before the presidential election. I didn't actually move up there until April of 1994. Uh -huh. so I lived there for 18 years, and then I wound up getting married, and my wife hates the cold. Uh-huh. So we kind of came to a Mexi Mexican standoff that she lets me go back to Lake Champlain once a year during the summer. So I, I don't have to completely give up my champ research. But sure. It's a nice, sure. a nice compromise. And, you, I mean, you were there for 18 years. And I'm guessing you lived very close to the lake at that time. Yep. I can um, to the lake in like 30 minutes. And, and which area were... Uh, and it was a very big area, the Lake Champlain. Which area were, were you in? Very close to Burlington. Okay. A place called Winooski, which is essentially suburban Burlington. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I think I might have passed you there uh, this, um, this September, actually. Probably. Probably. Now, my next question really uh, actually impacts upon that. So... Um, similarly to Nessie and, and other lake monsters, many, many women like yourself over the years, they've devoted their lives to 
to the search for champ. They've endured financial and personal hardships, and in many cases, you know, failing in those endeavors, which is the most likely outcome in, in most like monster research, or falling victim to the pitfalls of depression and, and life on hold issues. This type of pursuit uh, compromises. A lot of people end up crashing out. So how do you keep yourself fresh for the hunt? And have you mastered a healthy work-life balance? Absolutely. I mean, I'm very happily married. I have an animal, a cat. We used to have a dog, and she passed away, unfortunately. Um, yeah, I, you know, it's, the, the hunt for champ is not the end-all and be-all of who I am. It's a big part uh -huh. of it. And I continue, I, I hope to continue the search. Um, as you probably are aware, my research partner, William Jorginas, recently passed mm -hmm. from pancreatic cancer. Yes. And so it was if, very sad. If you've seen the uh, In Search of Champ or On the Trail of Champ mini series, you'll know that in 2017, we had a big boat with. 3D side scan sonar, and at that point was probably the best prepared I've ever been, technology-wise, mm -hmm. to pursue this animal and be successful at it. Well, due to Will's untimely death and his medical bills, he had to sacrifice his boat and all that technology. So I'm kind of having to start all over again. Uh-huh. Hoping, you know, over the it may not be overnight, but I'm hoping over the course of the next few years to get back to that place with sure. that technology. So I'm kind of um, having reboot here, you know? I mean, that was one of the things I was going to ask you, Ben, actually. Um, you know, having worked with uh, William all this, this time um, in very close partnership, you know, what was... Uh, what were were his contributions t to this field, and, and what was the legacy he left behind? Now, clearly, in your life, that's um, a friendship and uh, oh. a, a well-equipped research partner that's now missing. But for the community itself, for the the genre, what do you think he contributed to this well, this field of cryptozoology? Will was not only involved in the hunt for Champ; he was primarily known for his work hunting for Bigfoot. He actually saw a Bigfoot back in 1995. Wow. And he's held in high regard in the Bigfoot field. He had a cabin up in Virginia, not too far from where he had his Bigfoot sighting. Mm -hmm. Had everything rigged up with um, trail cams to try to capture an image of Bigfoot. He had engineered a lot of our own uh, cameras, which he called I Gotcha, which is the same sort of same sort of time-lapse camera that he was using on land for Bigfoot. He adapted for underwater, kind of like uh, in containers like the cameras that Bob Rines was using back in the 70s, these yellow. Uh -huh. We were using the same kind of camera that he had engineered at Lake Champlain underwater uh, attached to an anchor and a buoy. So we would go to fairly deep places like 30, 40, 50 feet deep and anchor mm -hmm. these cameras on the bottom. They were set to film upwards using the light 
of the sun to catch the silhouette of something swimming over the top. And uh, the best luck we had with the underwater camera was back in 2014, we got an image of a fish swimming over the top of the camera. Fantastic. Yeah, it was time lapse. It you know could go all day, and if something had happened to swim over the top of it, we would have gotten an image of it at Champ or whatever. Um, you know, I just think that's that's a really um, that's a really clever way to go about it because it's not being activated by by anything passing it, and it, perhaps it's a lot uh, less obtrusive to the animals, you know, the, in the natural environment there. Yeah. Um, we had in, the cameras with us in 2017, but unfortunately, oh yes. the water visibility that year was really bad, and we, we got no usable images from that trip. But we did get the sonar hit, plesiosaur-shaped sonar hit, which is on the documentary. I'm sure you saw that. Yeah, I, I did see. I, I reviewed that documentary, actually, and I really, really enjoyed it, and I actually yeah. saw it before I visited the areas. It was a great... Um, it was a great guide for me, visiting and, and seeing, you know, in, in real life terms, what you guys see all the time and what you filmed in the documentary. What I was staggered by, actually, is the absolute, the sheer size of the lake. I think yeah. it's 114, 115 miles uh, long, something roughly, like that. Uh, roughly 120 miles long. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And it's several miles wide in places. Yeah, a, I think it's 11 uh, miles wide. Wow. I mean, when you go to Loch Ness, you see it's such a different environment, 25 miles more or less, and a mile and a half. Loch Ness is like twice the depth. Oh, it's huge. It's It's like a vertical wall of water. You know, it's just staggering the depth of it. The the, 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 uh, deepest part of Champlain? 400 feet deep. Okay. Near uh, Split Rock. And I believe Loch Ness is at least 750 feet deep maybe a little deeper yeah well that's I, I think it's disputed but yeah it's a it's supposed to be around about that, I, that think, depth. I, think but I think i think everybody accepts 750. yeah i mean realistically even if you took 150 feet off that you're still talking about a very deep yeah. body of water I, I was there very recently actually it was, it was a very very good time now um these days, it's very unpopular to assert that lake monsters are plesiosaurs or some form of their descendants. Now, I, I know that you might be a little more on the plesiosaur side of, of thinking. Well, I mean, uh, what evidence do you think there may be for uh, uh, a plesiosaur-like well, creature at Lake Champlain? Well, um, two pieces of video evidence very much resemble a plesiosaur. That's Sandra Manzi's. 1977 photograph, uh-huh. which resembles something along the lines of a plesiosaur looking over its back. Mm-hmm. And then there's Peter Bodet's video from 2005, which appears to show some kind of object resembling a plesiosaur's head and neck, mm-hmm. and possibly a flipper, which comes out in the later part of the video. I'm mm-hmm. sure you've seen that video as well. I have, yes, yep. yes, I have. And probably beyond those two, the most uh, impressive is the uh, Peter Olson, I mean, uh, Eric Olson video from 2009, Uh which shows a kind of a turtleish looking creature. I see. I see. It it has a somewhat shorter neck 
than the things you see in the Bodette uh, and Nancy photograph. But some turtle, some plesiosaurs were kind of turtle-like and had shorter necks. So, okay. You know, I would think that one of those three, or possibly two of those three videos, gives us a general rough estimate estimate of what the morphology of these animals are if they exist. I believe they exist, but I can't prove it yet. So I'm I'm speaking lawyer speak here. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I was just wondering, do the witness uh, reports also corroborate that plesiosaur-like description? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. For the uh, most part, of the, what kind of percentage would you... Yes. yes, but, you know, people can argue that the idea that these monsters might be plesiosaurs has been floating around since the 1830s. So we could say that it's possible that preconceptions on the ideas of people maybe coloring uh -huh. their remembrance of what they think they saw. You know, you can't go back in a time machine and verify an eyewitness. Sure. sure. But you've got pieces of photographic evidence from Lake Champlain and especially from Loch Ness that seem to corroborate the eyewitness testimony. I think you know, I think you're right about that you, personally. You can go back and look at a video or a photograph and study it again and again and again. Where you you cannot do that with somebody's verbal description from an eyewitness. Mm. Yeah. In 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 regards to the eyewitnesses, however, uh, what types of monster imposters do you think they could be seeing at Lake Champlain if they're making? mistake if they're making errors do you do you ever get seals at lake champlain yes, is there any way for absolutely. seals to get inside well they there were plenty of seals getting in the lake back in the 1800s now uh -huh. there are a system of dams and canals on both rivers that connect lake champlain to the ocean but uh -huh. i think it was in 2016 a seal tried to get in the champlain hudson canal which has nine locks so it had entered the hudson river and was almost going to get into one of the canal locks so theoretically if a seal was lucky it could get into lake champlain now okay but it would have a hard time okay. doing that and remaining i mean in the process but seals do get into lock ness now they you know? do they yeah. certainly do um, and it's you know it's 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 not a it's not a um <clears throat> it's not a direct route. There are locks and dams and, and things like that in the way as well. Canals well, I primarily. Point out, though, I would point out that usually when this happens, they are immediately recognized as a seal. Yes, so they are. <laughs> you can balance it both ways, you know. I mean, if you got yeah. a quick glimpse of it and didn't realize what it was. Theoretically, you could mistake it for a, quote, monster. But yeah. most of the time people see it, they say, oh, that's a seal. You know, they're not saying, oh, I think that's the thing monster. about seals, Scott, is they're very conspicuous, yep. aren't they? Mm -hmm. And um, they don't really keep themselves hidden. I, I remember observing some seals in St. Ives in Cornwall. And I observed them swimming beneath the surface out in the, um, out in the bay there. was that? 200 feet away. I didn't realize there were seals there when I first got there, but immediately, even beneath the water, it was clear to me that they were seals. Yeah. 
I had no problem identifying, oh, look, there's a seal beneath the waves swimming below that surfer. I never thought for a moment it was something else or something unusual. Um, and I think but that's I think the at point Lake with these... that we have is a resident population of lake sturgeons, which can uh -huh. get sea long. And okay. I'm, I'm almost certain that a certain subset of marginal champ sightings are probably sightings of large lake sturgeons. Uh -huh. uh, would that be back sightings in particular? What's that? Or would that be back sightings in particular, or if somebody Probably. claims to see a flipper most of some likely. kind? Most likely, yes. Mm -hmm. That would make sense to me, for sure. Yeah. Um, now, on this subject, actually, while we're talking about this subject, um, a lot of people within the community complain that Lake Monster Research seems to be overrun with skeptics or non-believers. What are your thoughts on the added value of skeptical research, and do you think there's a line that skeptics can cross where they change from objective skepticism to philosophical skepticism. Yeah, well, there's there's a subset of skeptical thought that is called radical skepticism, uh -huh. which is like, you know, it's so far into the skeptical idea that, that it's like it begins with the basic premise that this thing cannot exist, uh -huh. Therefore, any arguments that there could be something to it are invalid just from the from the get go. Now, it's I am, defined I'm, by a worldview. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, I'm, I don't support that brand of skepticism. Uh -huh. But in the absence yet of a a type specimen to prove that these animals exist, I think healthy skepticism mm -hmm. is valid. One thing I've said before to people is that whether these animals exist or not, no, anything that anybody says about it, it's not going to change that. Yes. No matter how much I want to believe there's something there, if it doesn't exist, all the things, the arguments that I could make to say it exists, it's not going to make it exist. If yeah, it no, exist, I, I agree with that. All the negative arguments in the world are not going to make it disappear. So I try to keep that idea in perspective. So, you know, and, and a lot of people, you know, believers and skeptics alike get upset with each other because they can't convince the other person of, of the view that they're convinced of. You know, so I try to just be philosophical about it. Well, I noticed that you walk that line very, very well, actually, and I, I've always um, admired that. The reason is, I think, talking about worldviews, is that oftentimes you have worldview believers and worldview skeptics, and what we actually need is not believers, but researchers and objective skeptics. Yeah, and I mean, that's where they help each other and work together to I you know, solve you know, whatever is a particular piece of evidence. I try to learn everything that anybody's ever said about it. Mm -hmm. And though I may have my opinion about what this particular piece of evidence represents, yeah. I try to present the other arguments and just put it all on the table and say, look, this is what everybody has said about this. Make up your own mind. Uh -huh. That doesn't mean I don't have an opinion about it. It just means I believe in presenting all the arguments you know, I mean, some of the arguments 
the skeptical arguments, they go to such lengths to explain it away. Some of the skeptical arguments yeah. are inherently more ridiculous than the idea that it's just an animal that we don't know yeah. about, you know. Well, I mean, this is um, this is something I remember. Roland referred to that. Roland Watson referred to that as the um, my theory sucks the least theory. Mm. You know, um, uh. sure, perhaps there isn't a you know a twenty foot long eel that can raise its neck out of the water living in Loch Ness. But that beats the theory that there's a plesiosaur living from the time of the dinosaurs, still alive and and um, you know, thriving you know, in our modern locks and lakes. Kind of hypothetical animals mm. that have been hypothesized to explain, you know, you, they've come up with eels that look like plesiosaurs, seals that look like plesiosaurs, turtles that look like plesiosaurs, mm. long-necked whales, all kinds of, of things. No, no, that's fine. It's possible. But why make up an animal when you've already got one that we know that was real, that really existed? Exactly. That fits probably 75% <laughs> of the description and this animal is supposed to have been extinct for 65 million years if it has undergone a, another a complete you know further evolution uh -huh. past the 65 million years it may have changed a little bit so just talking about that that evolution and adaptation and, and things we know from fossils and, and things we infer uh, that we know or um, i always say um exclusions based upon assumptions people say that they're not seen enough and there would be an air breathing animal now i really liked your research into the butt breathing turtle yeah now, well, tell us about that and how that could correspond to uh, maybe plesiosaurs as well or, or lake monsters yeah. of some kind well there's a thing called cloacal bursae respiration that is used yeah. by certain turtles freshwater turtles in australia particularly this one, the Fitzroy River turtle, they believe gets 70% of its oxygen directly from the water using this method. And essentially how it works is that reptiles, <clears throat> their butt, as you would call it, uh -huh. they do all of their business, giving birth, sex, and all this, out of one orifice called a cloaca, right? Wow. So this... And these turtles, this cloaca, is lined with a sack filled with blood vessels. Uh -huh. So what they're doing, they're drawing water with oxygen in it into their cloaca. And these blood vessels that line this sack are absorbing the oxygen from the water like a fish gill. And it's going from the water into these blood veins into the blood system and getting into their, you know, the lungs and the heart and all that, okay. their, their vascular system. So they're essentially using their cloaca as a fish scale. Okay. So now, they, they absorb the ox oxygen from the water. Yeah, exactly. And they believe huh. the Fitzroy River Turtle is getting 70% of its oxygen through this method. So it's essentially breathing most of the time when it's underwater like a fish wow and it's oxygen directly from the water okay now that is an established fact uh -huh. there's a website about paleontology called paleos and they had an entry on elasmosaurs 
the super long neck plesiosaurs that had necks that were two-thirds the length of their body. And they were speculating, they were saying, well, if an elasmosaur was sitting on the bottom, because of that long neck, it might have a hard time getting oxygen from its head all the way down that long neck to the smaller body. I uh, see, yes. So they were suggesting that, and we already know that reptiles can absorb a certain amount of oxygen directly through their skin, which mammals can't do. So they were suggesting in this article on elasmosaurs that perhaps elasmosaurs were exploiting, you know, underwater forms of, of respiration, and then they mentioned the cloacal possibility too. So that's and, uh, the closest we've got to taking this idea from the turtles. Wow. We're established and saying that plesiosaurs might have been able to do this too. Now, anybody can look at the basic body configuration of a plesiosaur and see how similar it is to the body of a turtle. Uh-huh. The idea is not that far-fetched. Now, the cloaca sac, like the turtle has, would be a soft tissue thing that wouldn't necessarily be pre- preserved on a fossil. Yeah. Ever. yeah, sure. In recent years, they have found soft tissue parts of certain marine reptiles, fossils. They found a kidney on a mosasaur. They found an eye. They found skin impressions and blubber from a plesiosaur in Mexico called Mauritiosaurus. Uh-huh. Now they know they had blubber. And there was wow. a article about the ichthyosaur with blubber, too. I read that recent one, yes. So this is amazing so if they, they had blubber. Know. Maybe someday we will find evidence mm-hmm. of cloacal birthday respiration fossilized as soft tissue. But it's, that you know, amazing. But in the meantime, this this actually gives a plausible theory as to why these creatures aren't seen very often. Yeah, because you got the you got the conundrum of an animal that seems to behave like a fish and stay under the water most of the time, longer than you would assume an air breathing vertebrate would be able to. Yet when it comes to the surface, most fish don't have necks. It's got a morphology like a tetrapod. Uh-huh. So this is the only feasible answer I've been able to come up to get around that problem. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I realize how unlikely it sounds, but it is possible, you know. Well, I mean, wasn't it very unlikely for the turtle to, to have that same uh, ability exactly. before we discovered it? So yeah. I think we find animals with extraordinary abilities all well, yeah. the time, don't we? Uh, I always talk to people about um, potential octopus. answer. That is scientific. It sounds it sounds it to me. It, I mean, with a creature we don't readily know still exists or does or does not still exist. Yeah. Anything's possible. I think we can only search for the most plausible yeah. uh, theory um, out there as to why these things happen. But it would seem to me, and I'm, I'm wondering if you, you've studied this particular aspect of Lake Monster Law, if they're rarely seen in all of the locales they're supposed to inhabit. And if that's the case, you know, maybe this becomes more uh, more of a promising theory. If in every locale where there's 
let's say regular or there have been many lake monster sightings but rare sightings yeah they all exhibit this perhaps the same ability now my theory for a long time was that it was the nocturnal nature um of the animal maybe it could stay down for a couple of hours maybe the neck was long enough to get to the surface and, and take in a bit of air unseen um well, and of course, what you're talking about and combined it with this cloacal idea yeah yeah that makes it even more plausible yeah it sounds, it sounds like it's me stay underwater forever but i think they can stay underwater a long time probably uh -huh. longer than we assume how long can this turtle stay underwater without having to come to the surface? Do they know that? I've 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 had several different uh, things in the literature. One guy said three weeks, which I find a little hard to believe. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. If you'll strange. hang on a minute, I have the files right here. I just have to find them here on the computer. Oh, yeah. That's okay. We, I mean, we can we can add that later. I'll, I'll add that detail in for, for anybody who's interested. Yeah. Uh, which is fine. But it's um, hours, a long time, you know, at the very yeah. least. I mean, even if you're talking 24 hours, that's enough. Yeah. Yeah. That's enough. And you would and, have to think if you scaled it up to a much larger animal. I mean, the, the, the Fitzroy River turtle is about the size of an average turtle. You blew this up for an animal, say, 20, 25 feet long, would, would in theory have a much bigger cloaca and would be able to stay down longer and exploit it better than a smaller animal. I, now, guess. I don't know. Let's talk about other uh, possible uh, abilities that this animal has as well. Now, you, were, you wrote that paper, the abstract about the Lake Champlain Hydrophone Sounds, the Acoustical Society of America. Yeah. Uh, I'm assuming so it was with Elizabeth Mercantala, is that right? Yeah. Yes. Now, um, that was a very interesting theory, and, and a lot of people have um, experimented with that recently at Lake Champlain as well, and with varying results. Um, what's your personal take on this biosonar, or, or whatever this creature might actually have? Do you believe it's a possibility? Do you think there's been evidence that has been discovered uh, of this um well the sounds from 2000, ability. the sounds from 2003 remain unexplained uh -huh. sounds that have been promoted by other people in recent years i believe are the sounds of known fish in the lake uh -huh. particularly the freshwater drum and some of the chirping sounds are probably made by lake sturgeon uh -huh. However, the sounds that Elizabeth von Muggenfaller recorded in 2003 remain unidentified. That does not mean that they are made by chance. They just remain sure. unidentified. Now, were they, um, were they, uh, weren't they, sorry for interrupting me, but weren't they um, very similar sounding to cetacean? Um, yes. So, uh, killer whales. Yep, exactly. The, the, uh -huh. the, the whale sounds that they resemble the most and I showed this in the documentary, uh, are the sounds of a humpback whale. They call these oh. magaquits. That's what they resemble the most. And the interesting thing is that the humpback whale is a baleen whale, and it doesn't have a sonar melon like a normal toothed whale that uses echolocation does, yet it makes sounds like odontic. <laughs>